Thank you, Beth. I ask you to keep your Bibles open as we study <clears throat> study this passage together. Let's pause for a few moments and ask the Lord to help us today. Father, we we do this, we pause for a few moments before we meditate on and study a passage of Scripture together because we do believe your word is true, that it is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the depths of our soul, and that the word of God is the word of truth and the word of life without any error whatsoever. It is your eternal revelation to us. And so it's a really a sacred time, any, any time that we gather as a family of God and open up the Word of God, it really is a special time. And we do need your understanding, we need your Spirit, Father, and your will to be accomplished. Because we have other thoughts and, and we have distractions and we have other ideas and other presuppositions and uh, opinions and, and, and preferences. And we've had uh, a, a busy, maybe a hectic, maybe a troubling uh, week before us. Maybe there's something uh, that we realize in the week ahead of us. And there's just a lot going on that the, uh, the enemy likes to use, Father, to keep us from what the feast that you have for us in your Scripture and today especially, Father, as we look to the uh, crucifixion of the, your only begotten Son, our Savior, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and, and hearts to receive and love, minds to glorify what we behold when we look at Christ upon the cross. There is the power of the cross. There is the power of the living Word of God. And there is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we absolutely trust you today, dear Lord, to accomplish exactly what each and every individual gathered. Whether we are standing in this moment or sitting in this moment, each and every one of us need something that only you can provide, that only you can do. And so we, we ask God as we gather together in this time of worship that you would do exactly that, exactly what we need, whatever it is. It may be something that we believe we need. It may be, it may be something that we have no idea that that's what we need, but you know, Lord, you know exactly what we need. Would you accomplish it and glorify yourself in all of it? We ask in Christ's name, amen. You know, when you come to text like this text this morning, the crucifixion of Christ, it really, it really almost feels like you should remove your shoes, right? I mean, this is holy ground. 
The crucifixion of Christ is, is the centerpiece of Scripture, the centerpiece of history, of the gospel. Without it, without the crucifixion of Christ, Scripture becomes just another religious book. Salvation loses its anchor of atonement. Christianity loses its unique message of grace and devolves into a, just another works-based message like every other religious idea and philosophy that has ever been. Everything powerful and distinctive and promising and hopeful and certain and joyful about the gospel is lost without the crucifixion of Christ. It all comes down to the cross. If we don't have a sufficient substitute... We don't have salvation. So the, the passion or, or, the, or the suffering of Jesus that we've been anticipating as we've been studying verse by verse through Matthew's gospel, it really reaches its zenith here at, at the cross. Now we've observed in, in earlier texts, Jesus suffered before he was handed over to the Romans. He suffered opposition, he suffered rejection, he suffered betrayal, he suffered denial, he suffered false accusation, false trial. He suffered in wrestling with, with facing the darkness of bearing our sin in the garden as he prayed. But as he is condemned, his, the, his physical pain comes into focus in our text today, the crucifixion was by no means meant to be humane. In fact, the purpose of crucifixion was to display, to put on display for all to see such brutality as to be a deterrent. Do not oppose Rome. That was the purpose of it. So it was meant to inflict as much pain as possible before one would die and death finally bring such excruciating pain to an end. And this is where we find Christ in our text. The crucifixion of Christ. So let's meditate on this together and see what the Lord has for us. First of all, it was the crucifixion of Christ was preceded by torture. That kind of sounds odd because crucifixion itself is torture enough. Spikes would have been driven through the hands and feet of Jesus. He would have been hoisted up upon the cross, literally hanging, as Deuteronomy 21 would say, literally hanging on the tree. It was a painful, slow death. Loss of blood would result in dehydration, and one would slowly lose the strength and ability to pull oneself up upon the cross to catch a breath. Suffocation would result. Crucifixion itself was torture. 
But Christ not only endured the cross, as we've read in our text, he, he endured what preceded the cross. We learned last week, as the, our, our, our text last week left off in verse 26, that he was scourged, he was lashed with leather straps, pieced with bone and metal, literally ripping at his flesh. And then today we, we hear of the crown of thorns placed upon his head, struck with a reed. And as we stated last week, the, 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 the violent pre-crucifixion torture in itself was enough to be fatal to anyone. If you were executed by Rome, your death was meant to be as excruciating as possible. Now, how do we as believers understand and respond to such? Because we understand that the cross is not just an historical event, but a theological event. That it's not just a fact of an innocent man dying, but it's the implications that this man is the son of God and he's dying and there's something he's dying for. Or we could say someone he's dying for. So when we come to this text, how do we respond an old hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, says these words in its final verse. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never Outlive my love to thee. That's how we respond when we see the suffering of our Savior upon the cross. Preceded by torture, accompanied, secondly, accompanied with mockery. I think this is a kind of the, the it's really the ongoing theme throughout these verses, isn't it? Not only did the Romans and, and the religious leaders seek to inflict as much pain as possible upon Christ, they, they sought to, in the meantime, or as a course of action, while we are torturing him to humiliate and shame and scorn as much as possible, to make this not only physically impossible to endure, but emotionally and mentally taxing and weighing and Overbearing. We first hear of the, we first encounter here of, of what the soldiers did. They, 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 they did all that they could to, to present Christ as the most shameful, humiliated criminal that could possibly stand before the crowd that day. They stripped him. They, they tossed a scarlet robe around him, pressed the crown of thorns upon his head, placed a reed in his right hand. The whole time was just a scene of complete mockery. 
indicating that they, they were essentially making fun, making jest, that, that this man was a king at all. So let's make him a king as much as we can make him a king. This was bullying in its greatest form. They spit upon him. Just to, just to indicate how much he was hated, how much he was despised, how much he was rejected. And when they offered him wine, it's the, the scripture says mixed with gall. That, that wasn't a, a, a sympathetic gesture. That was a hateful gesture because that would have been horribly bitter. They, they were taunting him because they knew of his thirst. They, they were making it as completely unendurable as possible. And when they crucified him, they, they stripped him of his clothes once again and, and, and they sat at the, at the foot of the cross while Christ was dying and they gambled for who would take home these souvenirs, who, who would be able to show their family, this, look, what I, look what I brought home today. Guess who we hung today? It's interesting though, isn't it, that what they, they saw as mockery in calling him king of the Jews and, and even writing that as a charge on his cross in, in the form of well, a mockery. Their intended mockery, king of the Jews, was actually true. What they meant to be pointing as jesting and undermining and shaming and saying, look, if this is, a king, if this is your king, Jews, then we as Romans have nothing to worry about. Look at this king. When actually he was king, he is king. And when the king returns, and one day he will, they, they won't say king of the Jews in mockery. No one will say king of the Jews in mockery. Instead, everyone will proclaim him king and lord with bended knee. No one will sit down at his cross. We will bow down at his feet. But it wasn't only the soldiers, was it? It was also the crowds. So the crowds joined in in this jeering of Christ as he suffered and died, wagging their heads in, in disapproving insult, even making physical, right, nonverbal communication. We're all familiar with that, right? We, we are all familiar with nonverbal communication and what people uh, mean how they look and not necessarily what they say. Well, here they were, the crowds, giving as much insult as they possibly could, even physically getting involved, calling on him to save himself. If, if he's so powerful, taunting him, if he is indeed the Son of God, come down from that cross. If you are who you say you are, do what we want you to do. If you are who you say you are, then prove who you say you are by doing what we are challenging you to do. Now, when you start reading this 
all of this really mockery, you begin to, you begin to see someone's working behind the scenes, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Satan is at its best at, at the cross, isn't he? He's working in and through these individuals because what they say sounds just like the old enemy, the old serpent himself in the wilderness when he was taunting Christ. What did he say? If you are indeed the Son of God, make these stones bread. Christ didn't come down from the cross, not because he was powerless to do so, but because he was determined not to do so. He was willing not to do so. Christ didn't come to earth to come down from the cross, but to take the cross upon himself. He wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save sinners. The point is, the crowds missed it. The crowds missed the salvation that Christ was providing. They missed the gospel. They missed the prophecies of the Old Testament. They missed it entirely. They were led astray. But it wasn't just the soldiers or the crowds, was it? It was the religious leaders. They joined in in the mocking and the jeering of the Savior as he languished upon the cross. And they said, we, we will believe if he comes down. We will believe if he comes down. If, if God is his father, surely then the father will deliver his son. He said he was the son of God. If you notice, their, their mockery is a little bit different. The crowd spoke to Jesus. The religious leaders spoke about Jesus in earshot. Just close enough for him to hear their derision. But they missed it too, didn't they? I mean, they knew of all the miracles of Jesus. They had observed so many miracles of Jesus. They were not going to believe if he came down. That's something like the saying, see, they were so sure in themselves that he was not the Son of God, that he was just a man, that he was not who he said he was, that there was no way he could come down from the cross, and therefore they give this pledge to believe if he does. That's kind of like you're familiar with the saying, right, well, I'll do, I'll do su such and such the day pigs fly, right? Because you know pigs are not going to fly. Well, that's, their, that's where they're coming from. They're not going to believe. They're determined not to believe. But they entirely miss the point. Their, their certainty is entirely misplaced. They are certain that Christ is not going to come down from the cross, but they've got the wrong reason. They've got entirely the wrong understanding. Christ is not coming down from the cross because he's not the Son of God. But it's actually because he was the Son of God. And that was his mission. The cross was God's rescue plan for sinners from the beginning. Way back in Genesis 3, right after the fall, indications of this is God's plan to save people begin to unfold throughout Scripture. 
What we see, the soldiers mocked him, the crowds jeered him, the religious leaders sneered at him, and even the two robbers who were crucified on either side of him mocked him. The cross was a lonely place. Here Jesus was dying for the world, and it seems as if the world is heaping scorn upon him. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It looks like defeat, doesn't it? There he is, hanging, dying, scorned, mocked by everyone. It appears that his mission has failed, utterly failed. Who you are, from their point of view, who you are, the crucifixion disproves it. What you claim to do, what you claim to have come to do, this crucifixion absolutely undoes who you are who you say you are, and what you say you do. But Jesus knew what they didn't. The cross was not a place of defeat, but rather the place of victory. Jesus was not, Jesus was not losing. Jesus was winning. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You see, it was through the cross that Christ would return to the glory of heaven and along the way bring, Hebrews says, many sons and daughters of God with him. You see, he didn't lose when he died. He won. The cross is not here the mission failing to save sinners, but exactly how it was accomplished. And lastly, the crucifixion of Christ leaves us with an unforgettable image. There is the Son of God dying, gasping for breath, bleeding, bloody, body mangled, unrecognizable, heaped with scorn, rejected, despised, alone. By the time we reach verse 44, we're left with this gruesome, depressing, horrific, unforgettable image of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And what does that unforgettable image tell us? What, What does it convey What is the message of looking at Christ dying upon the cross? Because essentially, everybody standing there watching missed it. And God through Scripture has revealed it. What we see on the cross is what it took. When you see Christ upon the cross, you see what it took to pay for your sin And my sin, what it took to set us free. The words of the 
worship song, Here I Am to Worship, say, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Well, the crucifixion of Christ, this text, certainly gives us a glimpse. We certainly begin to see as far as we can see how much it cost that my sin was on the cross. We sang it just a while ago. That's that's the power of the cross. The Son of God slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Wrapping, wrapping up our study of this passage today, we may think, what about Simon? What about this, this Jew from Cyrene? Simon, like Barabbas, is an unintentional portrayal of the gospel. Now, unlike Barabbas, Simon was probably a decent man. He was probably truly seeking the Lord. He was there to there in Jerusalem for Passover. But he was compelled to pick up the cross and carry it to the place of death. You see, Barabbas, in our previous text, pictures us in salvation. Christ takes our cross. But Simon, he pictures us with salvation. Because we take up our cross. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Where do you take crosses? Well, we we take them to the jewelry store, right? But historically, where do you take crosses? To places of death. That's why they're built. To die upon them. You see, when we come to Christ, we die to this world. We, we die to sin. We, we die to self. We, we die to everything that keeps us from Christ. And through all of that death, through that cross, picking up that cross and, and, and dying to sin and world and self and, and everything around us, through all of that death, we find true life and life eternal. We follow Christ, if anyone would come after me, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It's the same for us as his people. We, we pick up the cross. We go to the place of death. We die to ourselves, And through all of that dying, we find life and life eternal. And so the question is, we've seen ourselves in Barabbas Have we seen ourselves in Simon? Have we picked up our cross and followed Christ who hung there that we might live? Let's pray. Father, we ask you as we have walked through this passage together and taken a look at the cross and heard the words that were 
layered upon Christ, words of scorn and humiliation and shame. And as we've seen the brutality of the cross and a dying Savior, but yet understood why he's dying and what put him there. An understanding, Father, that that is... That's the only way that we might be redeemed, that we might be rescued from our own sin. There had to be a substitute. There had to be a wrath bearer, a sin bearer to bear our scorn, our shame, our punishment, our guilt, that we might be saved, that we might be free, that we might have life, that we might be rescued that we might live forever. Father, may we as your people absolutely rejoice in you and and may our hearts and souls be filled with humble gratitude and thanksgiving today. And may our love for Christ grow by leaps and bounds. And we pray, Father, if there be someone gathered with us who has, who has yet to surrender their life, who, who's been holding on to something or holding on to someone or making excuses about this or trying to make their way to heaven or, or whatever it is that's been keeping them from true life in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would open up their eyes, lift up Christ before them that they might see what a beautiful, glorious Savior and that they might leave everything behind to have Christ and have him today. Lord, accomplish your will in our hearts, we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.